Things are tough all over. That's the takeaway from the state of play these days. In nearly every business, from farming to publishing, businesses and employees are hurting. In the midst of all of this, establishments around the country are starting to receive the go-ahead to slowly reopen. Many are choosing to stay closed and see how things unfold. Others are enthusiastically reopening to a sometimes wary public. In much of the country, reopening on even a minimal schedule is still weeks, if not months, away. Last week in the Beer Edge newsletter, and on this podcast, we talked about my call for local, city, and state governments to open up public lands and streets for restaurants and bars to serve the public. And we're starting to see cities around the country do just that. The next few weeks will show how that idea comes to fruition. In this week's issue of Beer Edge, editor John Hall talks with Brian Kobaki, the founder and brewer at Departed Souls, a brewery in Jersey City, New Jersey. Departed Souls made some non-COVID-related waves this week when it released Trash Can Banger, an IPA that at 5.4% shouldn't cause such controversy, except that the beer took a not-so-veiled shot at the Houston Astros, a team whose 2017 World Championship is mired in controversy due to a wide-ranging cheating scandal. The brewery is catching some hell over the beer, along with a lot of laughs. You can read more about that on our website at beeredge.com. On this week's episode of the podcast, I talk with Josh Noel, a staff writer for the Chicago Tribune. As you'll hear, I grew up in and around Chicago and spent much of my youth reading the trip. These days, things are tough for the hometown paper. It's a subject Josh will discuss, and you should certainly follow his Twitter account for more information. He's at Hopnotes. Josh is the author of the acclaimed book, Barrel-Aged Stout and Selling Out, about Goose Island's sale to Anheuser-Busch and he's also one of the country's best-regarded beer writers. As happens when you interview a journalist, Josh tries to turn the tables and interview me on a few occasions. It's really an occupational hazard at this point. In this interview, we talk about how COVID-19 is impacting the mainstream media, how when Three Floyd speaks, people listen, and we break down the state of beer journalism and writing today. We also have a few laughs along the way. Here is our conversation. I am Josh Noel. I write about beer and the beer industry for the Chicago Tribune, which I've done for the last 10 years. And in 2018, I published the book Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became Big Business. So is it easy to remember that full title? Because I feel like, you know, I, you know I've written a book or two and, and people constantly get that title wrong, even though there's only like four words. That's a lot more words. Yeah, well, I've said it probably about 674 <laughs> times by now. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's just it's it's tattooed on the brain at this point. It is a lot. Of, it is a long title and it was not really meant to be the title. It was sort of the working title for a long time. And I always figured uh, I would change it or my publisher would change it. But no one ever came up with anything better. So there it is. Barely just out and selling out and then all the, all the other words after the colon. That's pretty good. I like it. And as you said, you are a writer for the Chicago Tribune, but we should note at the moment you are not a writer for the Chicago Tribune (laughs) this week. What's the what's going on with that situation? Yeah, well, tough times all over. The um, Tribune is furloughing all uh, unionized uh, newsroom employees for three weeks. Initially, they wanted to cut our pay 
four and a half percent. But I'm actually part of the bargaining committee for the newsroom uh, uh, union, and uh, we fought that off because we didn't think that a permanent 4.5 percent pay cut made a lot of sense in what is hopefully and uh, you know at the moment is a temporary situation. Um, but we did agree to furlough, so I yes, I am I am on furlough right now, dealing mostly with my kids and drinking beer rather than writing about it. Yeah, how does how does that feel to be? sort of a, a, a longtime journalist in the midst of a massive story, even if it wasn't one that was directly on your beat, though I understand that you had also had to pivot to some of that coverage. How does it feel to just sort of be put on the sideline at the moment? Terrible. Yeah, this is, this is, yeah, this is, this is a huge story. Um, and, you know, we did have, uh, I did pivot. I was on the food, I was covering beer in, in the industry for food and dining, which is a feature section. And when COVID sort of, you know, changed everything uh, in a matter of days, I was moved to the business desk to write about COVID through that, uh, that lens. But I, I did still wind up doing a lot of beer coverage and beer industry coverage because it wound up being a really interesting uh, barometer for everything else that's happening right now. I mean, no one's pivoting harder than breweries as they try right. to survive. And that, that wound up being a pretty fertile landscape to write about for the trip. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's frustrating to, uh, to be on the sidelines and, and uh, all, all my colleagues feel the same. And it's unfortunately newsrooms across the country are a lot of folks are in that same position. We could do a whole podcast or 10 of them about things such as what the Trib's ownership are doing right now and and the and the troubles with that as opposed to the small amount that they seem to have recouped by furloughing people. But for the purposes of this podcast, why don't we stick with uh, talking about what were some of the some of the stories that you were covering for the Trib uh, COVID related and relating to the beer industry before before the furlough? Well, and I did a couple sort of, you know, the trip is a is a general interest publication, obviously. So, um, it, you know, one of the biggies right off the bat was sort of just about the, the, the pivots we're seeing, sort of, uh, you know, the move to uh, curbside contactless delivery, which really, you know, to, to people sort of within the industry, it's, it's kind of old news at this point, but a lot of... Uh, Joe's on the street are, are pretty amazed by it that right. they can drive up to like every day almost. I, I will chat with someone like so, you know, a neighbor or something. Who said, oh man, did you know you could go to the brewery down the street and order on, uh, on your phone and they'll put the beer in your car and you can drive away. It's so cool. And people are really amazed at, at some of these new models that the breweries have adopted during this time. So I did, you know, just sort of a big pivot story trying to explain, um, how breweries are keeping up and moving uh, kegged beer into cans and the hand sanitizer thing. And, um, you know, one thing that's been particularly interesting to me, which will be interesting, I think, going forward, is how some of these um, sales and marketing models that have been developed on the fly, such as, so there was a, a bottle shop here in Chicago, and I'm sure this has happened in, in plenty of places, but uh, I wrote about a store that had a new release from a very small brewery um and it was like their new uh double dry hopped you know the kind of thing that people will make a point to right. come out for on the day it's released is it you know double dry hop double ipa haze bomb um and 
he announced on like a Tuesday or Wednesday, okay, this beer is going on sale. You've got 48 hours or 72 hours or whatever to buy it. And then on Friday at 6 p.m., we're going to jump on Zoom with the brewer. So come on into the store, buy the beer, and we're all going to have this virtual live tasting with the guy who actually made it. We can taste together, talk about it, ask questions. Um, and I did, I dug into a little bit like whether this is a model that can endure beyond COVID. Is this, are we creating things on the fly that actually will have some shelf life? Because that to me, especially as, you know, a dad of two little kids, like that makes too much sense to me. Uh, trying to get to a brewery tap room to have that experience on a Friday night or any night really, mm-hmm. um, is tough. But if I'm able to buy the beer at my leisure and then just log on and have pretty much the exact same experience, I mean, you're still drinking the beer um, and you're still having the experience of interacting with the person who made it and picking their brain about it and, you know, sharing thoughts and ideas. uh, I don't see why that wouldn't endure. So I think that'll be an interesting thing to watch going forward is whether some of these things that have been created in response to COVID if there's actually a place for them in the future. And along those lines, we're seeing, like you're saying, some of these pivots, these necessary you know, pivots for these breweries, whether it's, you know, selling beer to go or trying to, you know, you know, other places selling cocktails to go, whatever it is, you know, we've had a pretty strict, you know, three tier system or alcohol laws, you know, in most parts of this country. Do you expect, you know, whether in Chicago or elsewhere after, you know, this is all said and done six months, a year, 18 months, two years, that we're going to see some residual impacts on the industry of, of some changes, some of those longstanding rules and some sort of loosening, you know, whether it's home delivery or, or takeaway. Yeah, that's tough. I, it seems like a lot of people are sort of taking for granted that some of these changes and tweaks to the three tier system are going to last. Right. I'm less bullish on that because distributors are very uh well represented when it comes to uh lobbying and state capitals and they have deep rolodexes Mm -hmm. and this is their livelihoods you know and i'm not saying that in a way that is sympathetic to them i'm just saying they've got a lot on the line and they already did because people you know the three tier the the strict three tier separations have been eroding for years as we all know like tap rooms have have done a number Mm -hmm. on that um and, and, you know, in a way that's very positive for the brewer and for the consumer. So, you know, it's, it, it makes some sense, the, the growth and the changes we've seen. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see distributors push back real hard to preserve what they have and to uh, not let this usher in a permanent change that, that will harm their their bottom lines but it'll be i think it'll be an interesting thing to watch unfold um because i'm sure the the state brewers guilds are all very eager to keep you know right the the progress that's been made to keep that rolling um but i i, I gotta assume it's going to get hammered out in uh in conference rooms and state capitals yeah. um do you have an opinion on that um, if I may turn the tables, I'm about to say this is this is the problem with interviewing a journalist. This inevitably happens. We all have our own questions. I I think I agree with you. I think that there's you, there needs to be some skepticism. I mean, I frankly have loved watching, uh, you know, 
you know, breweries and, you know, tap rooms and bars and restaurants and package stores being able to deliver directly to consumers. Uh, this is the model that works in a lot of the rest of the country or a lot of the rest of the world. Um, but here we do have entrenched systems and those entrenched systems have the players behind them who have a fair amount of political support and a fair amount of money. And, you know, there's a reason that these systems have been set up and maintained. And there are players that that benefit greatly from maintaining those systems. And I think it's going to be, you know, this is, I wrote something recently talking about how this is a once in a generation chance to sort of alter these rules and alter these laws. And maybe the only thing that really goes to support that is not that these small brewers are going to be able to flex political muscle and get it done, but consumers may, like your neighbor, may become so used to, you know, the ease and accessibility of being able to get beer delivered to them or be able to take away that, you know, there may be some political, you know, blowback on politicians and, and distributors who are trying to to basically limit their access to the market. I, you know, short of that, I think that, you know, to the extent that things go back to normal, I think systems go back to normal as well. Yeah, and a lot of people have a lot invested in, in making them go back to normal, you know, and if they, they frame it as, well, this was an exception only because of the remarkable moment in time that was covid then i think people might understand you know that this was a, a limited thing um but yeah there maybe there's momentum ironically enough this is one of the articles that i wanted to write this week if i was not on for right. so there you go <laughs> yeah it, it would make sense and you know i wrote another one you know last week or so talking about you know talking about my love of essentially outdoor drinking and drinking in public with the ability to sort of make that you know, do it in a way that is, you know, both safe and safe and, you know, good for, you know, fine for the community. But, you know, we're starting to see some places, you know, come up with some new rules trying to, trying to, you know, because restaurant trade is just getting absolutely decimated. And the thought of, you know, just trying to get people back indoors into these restaurants and in these bars and these tap rooms is going to be next to impossible in, you know, it, to sustain these businesses at, at the levels and the margins they're used to in a lot of parts of the country. Maybe there are parts of the country, you know, wide open spaces, Montana, other places that have not been hit hard by this. But I can speak, you know, in Massachusetts, in the Boston area, which is one of the top three hotspots in the country. Nobody I know is itching to get back into a bar. You could open the bars tomorrow and there'd be a bunch of ding dongs in there the first couple of days or so. But frankly, you know, most people, you know, maybe you get 20 percent of your pop, you know, your population back in there maybe 30%. So, you know, we're trying to come up with new things and we're starting to see some communities respond with, you know, we've got one community here that's recommending that you go buy, you know, food and booze takeout from your, you know, the local restaurant in town and come to the public common, the public green area, and they put picnic tables out there. And they're mm-hmm. inviting you, hey, if you buy, you know, at the at the local town shops, you're welcome to come sit in the in the open air at the at this green and enjoy that. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how how it because there obviously will not be a a, a I was going to say a, a swift return to normal, but will there even be a return to normal? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's it, the new models are it's not like we're just going to flip a switch back to the old models. Right. It's you know, it's going to be a, a long, slow transition, I guess, in theory, until there's <laughs> knock on wood, a uh a vaccine and and it seems like there'll be a lot more i, I don't I, I don't it you know that there's been a, a lot of predictions of brewery carnage and at least in chicago which has a lot of breweries um we've only seen one brewery actually close its doors 
uh, and initially it was sort of passed around as a COVID related right. closure. But then I was that Ar- you know was that Argus. Argus, yep, yeah, exactly. Yep. And that place right has had it, it. that place has had its own unusual history over the years. Exactly. So. I mean, once you sort of dug in a little bit, it was clear that they were already they, the, the owner was already leaning towards closing, and COVID just sort of helped him make the decision. Right. But it, it was not a healthy business to start with. Um, and I, I've assumed that the, a lot of the, the places we'll unfortunately see go out are places that had underlying issues. Um, but we haven't seen a lot of places go out. You know, how long is it going to take for that to sort of unfurl itself, you know? Yeah, and I, th- I agree. That was the, you know, the Brewers Association and others were doing the studies and the polls early on that said, you know, places thought that they had one to three months in them were, you know, a quarter of the places or whatever the number was. And then, you know, you know, three to five months or six to eight or whatever it was. But I agree, we're not seeing the mass closings. And I, I don't know if that's because these breweries have tried to come up with innovative solutions and they realize once they, you know, once they were able to ax a lot of their overhead costs in terms of personnel for frankly, for the most yeah. part, that they were able to at least make do for some period of time. Brewers I talked to are, you know, they just cut themselves to the bone. Essentially the owner or the owner's family are the ones basically doing all of the work at this point. And they're, you know, they're not, they're certainly not making a mint, but they are making enough to ride this out for a few months. Um, and, you know, obviously there are places, especially in bigger cities with rent and mortgage payments and higher insurance and liquor, you know, liquor uh, costs and, and licensing costs that may have a much more difficult time of it. But others, I agree, we have not seen that, that complete slide into just closures. But on the other hand, that may be, the next thing we hear about that may be, yeah, you be know, a month or two months. Coming. Yeah. But I, it also, it's, I mean, as we, we speak that, you know, things are starting to quote unquote reopen, um, and to, in some form or fashion may be limited, but it, you know, the wheels of the social wheels are starting to turn a little bit. So, I mean, every, you know, journalist or not, everyone's rooting for these businesses to survive for, you know, people to be employed and to be able to take care of their families. Um, so hope you know. Hopefully, it's it, this hasn't dragged on too long. And and you know, with regard to public health, it's not too soon that we're that these social wheels are starting to turn. Right. So yeah, there's so much to still to figure out, but it's yeah. it's unfurling. But yeah, I mean, it hasn't been the bloodbath we've all feared so far. You know, one brewer mentioned to me that I mean, obviously, one thing that so everyone's cutting to the bone. Yes, everyone's down like somewhere between probably sixty and ninety percent, which is mm-hmm. rough. Um, one brewer said, so obviously, you know, how much money you have in the bank is, is a huge thing, you know, how, how, you know, how deep your pockets are. But another one brewer said to me that he thinks a lot of it is going to come down to relationships. You mentioned mortgages and rents and, and, you know, suppliers and things like that. It's like, you know, how are those relationships? And if they're fundamentally sound and you're able to sort of work together to solve the problem that's going to go a long way. You know, it's not just about being down 80% your business. That's horrific. But if you're down 80%, but make smart decisions and those relationships are strong and, you know, you hadn't taken on too much debt, then, you know, the odds hopefully are on your side. Yeah. I was talking with Doug Vilecki in the, you know, of revolution in Chicago in the first episode we did of this podcast. And he was basically saying that he's saying, you know, it really does depend on the relationships and, 
You know, mm. this is why he is always counseled, uh, you know, the staff there to, you know, and the owners there to, you know, have a good relationship with your bank, have a good relationship with all of your vendors. Just mm-hmm. sometimes just call them and talk to them. And he's, you know, it's, it's what he's advocating now. Just even if you don't, even if you don't have an ask or anything, just call and have a conversation yeah. because you can learn so much more and it helps build that relationship. And there may be some, you know, you know, whether it's rent or you know, mortgage forgiveness or some flexibility to just maintain some cash on hand. But other places, you know, are, are obviously maybe new or didn't have that focus. But I can tell you one place that probably did have, you know, you know, those kind of good relationships that's still talking about trouble is Hopleaf. And I've been seeing, and I'm sure you have as well, you know, the owner there, Michael Roper, and Hopleaf is one of the, you know, premier beer bars in this country and certainly in the city of Chicago has been talking in in more and more dire you know circumstances in recent weeks about what the potential fate is for his and other restaurants and he had been talking for the last few years about sort of the over the just how many restaurants there were in Chicago and how difficult he thought it was going to be for them years ago to survive but now it's 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 the flip side and he's taking a sort of a look at as you're talking about, sort of these people who are now just starting to reopen or now starting to contemplate reopening, starting to realize that that is not going to look like 60, 70, 80, 90% capacity that they were used to, but instead could be 20 and 30 for an extended period of time, and you can't survive on that. And so he's yeah. starting to talk in some dire terms. Yeah, yeah. So there's, it's it's going to take a while to all make sense. Um, and, you know, I, I, I got to think, you know, Montana and having wide open spaces uh, as an advantage. And so I wrote an article uh, (laughs) the last week I wasn't on furlough about three Floyds deciding not to reopen, even as Indiana is moving to reopen. So Floyds could be reopening. um, And Nick Floyd is not reopening his tap room. Uh, I forget the exact numbers. I want to say it was he's got about he can fit about 70 people in a tap room. Uh, well, brew pub, I guess that uh, is about 2000 square feet. And, you know, you look at photos in there and it's it's pretty cozy. And yeah. he says he's just not comfortable with it. Um, and he mentioned, he said, you know, if I could do like, ha- you know, reopen in a big field where everyone can put a lot of distance between themselves, that would make me a lot more comfortable than re- trying to recreate what I had, because what I had just doesn't fit these times. Um, and it was uh I mean, that was, you know, when, when, when three, at least around here, when three Floyd speaks, people listen, right. Uh, that, that, the, the number of eyeballs on that article were, was, was huge. Cause people just, that brewery has a unique ability to make people care. It's pretty, right. pretty remarkable. And and so that really, uh, shocked a lot of people to hear that Floyd's wasn't going to reopen, but, but Nick was more open to sort of the, you know, in, in a different framework, it could work again, the, the wide open space, uh, but he, you know, doesn't really have that at his disposal right now. And then the other thing here and where you are and, you know, a big chunk of this country is the weather's going to, you know, get lousy in, you know, a few more months yep. and people aren't going to be wanting to stand outside in November drinking beer necessarily. So, uh, I wonder if, if, you know, a brewery in Arizona may be better positioned if, if this thing really does drag on. Right. And so many places are making, you know, in our, in our neck of the woods, you know, respective necks of the woods, like it, you know, they're make, that's where they make their money is these summer months, especially you look at a place like, you know, Maine and, and probably Wisconsin, 
you know, being, you know, two sort of vacation land examples, they make huge portions of their annual, annual take in these three months or so. And, you know, if you're down substantially during that period of time, let alone closed, you know, it's hard to make the rest of the year, the numbers work. Yeah, I'm sorry, my five-year-old just came out to join me for the podcast. <laughs> well, welcome to him. So I've been noticing, uh, also, you know, we talked about a little earlier before we, you know, got on the recorded part here, but you're talking about a new book book project. Anything you're able to talk about? Anything beer-related? Uh, it's actually not beer-related, and it's going so slowly, I hate to, <laughs> hate to say anything publicly. <laughs> but I was, uh, I actually have a couple ideas for future beer books, um, but my next book also it, it's the first one i would say has a, a deep chicago hook obviously but is meant to resonate on a much broader level so mm-hmm. if you live in um in you know portland or seattle or minneapolis or miami or whatever uh it's still meant to to resonate and and the next book is sort of the same thing a big chicago hook but with it that tells a much broader story that's that's the goal and the hope these two kids make it hard to uh, yeah. sit down and concentrate for an extended period of time. The no. furlough in theory was supposed to be helping, but uh, no, that just, that's more time. That's more time for Paw Patrol or whatever else you, uh, your, your exactly. kids are into. Um, you got it. So beyond, yeah. So do you think there's actually a market for, for beer books? How did the last, how did the last one do? It was obviously, I thought it was a great book. I, you know, you know, worked with you on, on one particular section of it to just, uh, and I, and I loved it at that time and thought it was a great read. Uh, and I really was hopeful that this is kind of where, you know, beer writing would go in a, in a more professional way. But I think, you know, it seems like there, it's a tough market for books, let alone beer books. Yeah. I guess I'll, I'll take the opportunity to jock you on your own podcast, uh, and say that, yes, there was one chapter that was probably technically the hardest to write uh, dear listener, and I sent it to Andy Crouch to uh, say, does this work? Does this make sense? Does Do I need to change anything? And, and Andy uh, took time and read it and helped me make sense of it. So thank you again, kind sir. Uh, the book did, yeah, it did well. It didn't do, it, it did better than what my publisher thought it would. It did in a year, basically, sort of what they hoped it would do over the course of its lifetime. Um, I just got a royalty check, which is cool. So that that's it's still, you know, it's still going. Nothing huge, nothing I can quite put my kids through college on, unfortunately. But it, you know, it helps. Um, so yeah, it did well. People were interested in the story. Um, excuse me, it may have been a little too in the industry weeds for the uh, for the super mainstream reader. I always thought of it as like Sea Biscuit, like you know, no one, not that many people care about horses and horse racing but that book just you know managed to resonate on this far broader level and you know i hoped i would have that success maybe not quite the sea biscuit success but you get my point yeah um there was some crossover i think in the mainstream but it seems like it mostly resonated with people who are interested in beer and the beer industry um and it did well and i'm really thankful for that um i mean the fact that the nation has grown to more than eight thousand breweries uh, is indicative of something, right? I mean, the audience is 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 uh, is there. Um, yeah, as far as the state of beer journalism, boy, that's a I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, 
I don't know. What do you say about that? I think pre, I mean, pre COVID, it was a tough situation. And then after, you know, obviously COVID and its impacts on advertising and subscriptions has just been brutal as we're seeing layoff after layoff in, you know, round of, you know, around the country and at these, you know, great legacy media companies down to, to smaller upstart ones. Um, so it was, it was a difficult time to begin with, but now, you know, we've seen so many beer related publications close and not so many come up, you know, in their, in, in their, in the wake of them. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of sort of underemployed beer writers who probably could use markets, but we don't, you know, we're, and I can tell you, you know, from our perspective, John Hall and I are, you know, we're trying to do, trying to do something here. Uh, but it's, you know, these are tough, they're, they're tough financial times all the way around. And I, uh, you know, I think there are some, some good bright spots like uh, Matt Curtis and his Pellicle publication, I think is, is a good read. And it's something that I support. And I see some younger writers on Twitter that I, that I follow that I think are doing good stuff. But otherwise, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's kind of crazy to me that in a world where, or you know, just a let alone in this country where we had such exponential growth in the number of breweries that that has not been it's actually been the you know the polar opposite in terms of how the media response has been and I don't know what that says about you know whose relationship is where and and who should be supporting whom and or if there just isn't a generalized market for reading about the you know the beers that people seem to love so much but with 8000 breweries and another 1500 or so or more in planning and very few beer publications left. It's sort of a, it does lead you to scratch your head. Yeah. I guess one positive sign, it's a small one, but you see more mainstream coverage of the industry. Like the New York times, Josh Bernstein does a lot of really good beer writing. Um, and he's, he's in the New York times pretty regularly they, I, so far as I understand, wouldn't give, the craft beer industry the time of the day for years and years mm-hmm. and and now they're showing a little more interest uh due to whatever relationship he's carved out there uh usa today has a guy on it um so it, there's a little more interest from in the mainstream uh but yeah it is strange how you know sort of the heyday of beer journalism was when the nation had a thousand breweries right um, I don't know. Maybe there's something meaningful there, you know? Yeah. So we'll, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. We're all trying to do our part and hopefully you'll get back to being able to do your part soon. And the trip will, and its ownership will get its, get its head right. And, uh, and realize where, where the value is. But until, yeah, uh, until, until that point, uh, what other, uh, what other, what do you, what have you been drinking recently? What have you been enjoying? I noticed you had a story recently on Malort and for those of you who don't know what it is go ahead and google and then you know hit pause here and come back uh in anti-hero you know how how is that what else have you you know where else have you been drinking from uh, since you're not able to to get out and go to bars though i don't know how often yeah, that you was, were doing that before that if i may that that Malort thing was kind of interesting that so that was a story i'd been wanting to write was all the uh sort of the ghost kegs out there all the draft beer that was not going to find a home due to this and that was just going to go out of code so one creative solution here was revolution brewing uh which you mentioned before they they took 100 i want to say 40 kegs it was of their flagship ipa anti-hero and turned it into uh malort which is this very bitter liqueur made by a company here in chicago 
uh, sort of a, a fun, creative solution to a much larger problem. Um, that was a fun story to write. People care in Chicago a lot about Three Floyds. They care a lot about Malort. Those are basically <laughs> the, the, the two big things. So if uh, Floyds and Malort ever team up, actually, I think they have now that I think about it. They had aged uh, some stout in a Malort barrel or something. Anyway, I Yeah, I, they I just need to get, they um, get some zombie dust in a Malort barrel, and then Nick can buy the field that he needs to reopen the pub. That's right. That's right. The Chicago uh, internet will, will collapse on the day that zombie dust meets uh, Malort barrel. <laughs> uh, I've been drinking lighter. I mean, just anecdotally, I mean, uh, part of it's the season, I guess. I know you were, you were early on the, uh, on, on the, the Pilsner is life uh bandwagon have, have um, been have been for years if i had a tattoo that would be on me pilsner is life yep uh i'm i'm with you i'm with you uh there's a brewery in chicago called dovetail that just does oh actually you and i have been there together. oh yeah um uh dovetail just does just the most wonderful work and they do mostly loggers uh and it's i don't know if it's time of the year or if it's just being so close to home all the time but Really, just a nice, uh, perfect Telus lager is pretty much all I need these days. That said, there's a, a pale ale in my fridge I'm, I'm quite excited about. Uh, that was just canned. Um, so I, I'm just sort of drinking lighter, a lot of, lot of lagers, uh, some pale ales. I um, uh, got some Kolsch in there. Uh, you know, fruity, refreshing. Just, I don't know, it's just That scratches the itch right now i've never been the biggest uh haze bomb guy or pastry stout guy i do love bourbon barrel aged stouts i do love uh ipas and double ipas that lean a little more west coasty or even uh midwesty if uh, if that is uh, actually a thing um but uh yeah just a little lighter crisper cleaner just just tastes so darn good right now yeah oh, the dovetail reference that kills me yeah there's uh I've been following what they've been doing, and I, that is a place that I miss, and I was hoping to be back in Chicago to visit family and do some events this summer, but obviously that got derailed, but I'm hoping to be able to get back sometime soon, and when I do, buddy, I hope uh, you and I can get together for a beer, but thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was nice to chat. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Beer Edge podcast. This show is produced by Beer Edge and co-hosted by myself and John Hall. We know it's lonely during COVID-19, so if you want to reach out, we look forward to hearing from you. I can be reached at BeerScribe on Twitter or via email at andy at beeredge.com. If you've got some time, and we know you do, drop a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Be sure to check out our revamped Beer Edge website, where we're posting new articles every week. Also be sure to check out John Hall's other podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, which drops every Wednesday. We'll catch you next week with another episode of the Beer Edge Podcast. Until then, stay safe and healthy.